0: So today, I've entitled the message, His Way, My Way. And it's actually something I've talked about before. Um, Several years ago, I talked about this, but uh, I felt like God was putting on my heart. It's something that we need to to dive into again. And I don't know if that's because those of you who heard it the first time have already forgotten it, or if there's just a lot of new faces that haven't heard it yet. But either way, we're going to talk about it again. And here's the thing. I think that as we live our lives all too often, we limit God by our experience. And what I mean by that is that we look at God and, and we begin to ascribe to him the attributes of maybe our natural father. Like, oh, he's a father. Maybe he's like my dad. And we begin to put limits on who he is. Or maybe we begin to think about God as, this, as, the, as the one who we see portrayed in TVs and movies and stuff like that. I know for me, when I was younger, a lot of my education of God and Christianity came from tv and movies and i'll be the first to tell you that's a terrible place to get your education on 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 the scripture amen but what happens is as we begin to make these pictures in our mind of who who god is and what he can do and uh, we also tend to limit god by what we think is possible you know, One of the things that I think the, uh, in the United States particularly, while we don't see as many miracles as you do, it's much more common to see miracles happen in third world countries where we send missionaries. But it's because I think in the U.S. we've conditioned ourselves so much that the supernatural can't happen. And we already start with a mindset that that we have no faith for these, for miracles and the supernatural. And and we have this idea that, that well these things can't happen. And uh, the, the problem is, is that I, I think that in life, the bigger problem that we face means the bigger faith that we have to have. And some people will say, well, Pastor Wayne, doesn't the Scripture say that if we have faith like a mustard seed, then, then we can move mountains? And, and it does say that. But it doesn't say faith the size of a mustard seed. It says faith like a mustard seed. And then Jesus begins to describe what the mustard seed does. It starts out tiny. But as it's watered, as it's nurtured, as, as it's cared for, as it grows, it turns into a mighty plant. So when, when it says we have faith like a mustard seed, I think, yeah, we may start off with little faith, but over time, as we exercise our faith and we put our trust in God, our faith grows, and it becomes like the mightiest plant that even birds can live in it from this little tiny seed. I think our faith is like that. So I think, you know, getting saved requires a small amount of faith. But seeing someone healed from cancer requires a much larger amount of faith. And even then, I think in, in, in our lives here, we get this idea that these things can't happen. The supernatural can't happen. So we almost condition ourselves to limit what God can do in our lives. The thing is, though, God is too big to be placed in a box. And his ways are not our ways. You guys should have said amen on that. The thing is, is he may well, and he often does, do things that are totally different to how we would like them done or how we would have done them ourselves. And Isaiah 55, 8, as we get started, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. I think this is one of the things that we have to really get a a grip on and understand thoroughly if we ever want to grow in our faith. We have to stop telling God what he can and can't do. We need to stop telling God how he's allowed to work in our lives. Anybody ever prayed for something? Like, I'm praying for a job, and a job shows up, and you're like, oh, man, I don't want that one, God. I had something different in mind. If you could just go back and, and try again, I'd appreciate it. We, we tell God how he can work in our lives. We tell God what he's allowed to do, what he's, uh, what he's, he, he's, he's able to do. And the thing is, is that God is not going to force himself in your life. Oftentimes when you tell him he can't do something, he says, okay. I know there's been so many times that I've tried to tell God how he should do something. Now I know you guys probably have never been in this situation, so I'll just tell you about what's happened in my life. And I know there's been times I've gotten upset or, or didn't understand when things didn't operate or go as the way that, they, that I thought that they should. This, uh, you know, opera uh, leading a church and, and doing what God's called me to do, it's been many of those situations over and over and over. Because I, I, I figured I knew how it would happen if God wanted me to plant a church. I knew what it was going to look like. And I begin to have these plans and understandings. And then when it doesn't work out that way, it's really easy to get upset. Say, God, why aren't you doing what I wanted you to do? I mean, if you wanted me to plan a church, obviously I know what it should look like. <laughs> and then even recently, in the last few years after COVID happened, because I thought we were going in that direction. We were growing. I mean, we're still half the size. We were at our peak before, before we uh, COVID hit. And uh, obviously that, that impacted not just, not just us, but, but every church was impacted by that. And, and for some reason people have uh, just decided that they're not going to come back to church after this whole situation happened. But, and then, I was concerned about that I couldn't figure out why we weren't growing Why weren't things turning around I mean we were doing so good before What's going on And, and, and so many of, of the people that I look up to Pastors that I look up to The, the men of God in my life had said you know Maybe you should just be focusing on the people you have And the first time you're like Well that's good advice But that's, that's not what I'm doing right now <laughs> And then the second, third, fourth person told me you're like Well maybe this is God speaking to me But it wasn't how I wanted to do it it wasn't how, my. if I'm being honest with you guys, we've, we've been going for over 10 years now, I never thought for a second I would still be working a regular job. I thought we'd be big enough so that I could focus on the church. I could get a sal- enough salary to, so the, 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 that I could live and it and could focus on the church. Never for a moment did I think that I would still be working full time and just volunteering at the church. But I began to realize that that's kind of what God has for me right now. And it's funny, when you finally um, stop fighting God and just go, okay, God, like this, the, amount, the amount of peace you have. The, the, I mean, just my entire demeanor, my, my mental fortitude, everything changed when I finally said, okay, God, I'll do it your way. And every time that happens, yet every time I still want to tell God how it goes, and then I want to push back for a long time because I know it's right when... I I wish that I would just learn the first time. (laughs) But it seems I keep doing it. But the thing is, is I've got my own ideas of how I want it to work. And uh, if we're not careful, we begin telling God how he can fit into our plans instead of asking God how we can fit into his. Amen. The funny thing is, as I look back at my life, all the things that I've gone through, all the situations where... I would have done it differently or all this. I can look back now and, and while I was in it I couldn't see it but now I can look and see how God has been preparing me and shaping me and getting ready for where I am today. And I imagine right now even though I can't see it he's preparing me and shaping me for where I'll be in 10 years. My entire life experience has been just one of preparation for God to use me. And I, I want to be real careful that I'm never telling God this is, this is what, what we can do and this is what we can't. Because here's the thing, we all have a very short, narrow cone of vision. We don't see the big picture, we just see what's right in front of us. But God sees the big picture, He knows how all the pieces fit together. And if we don't understand and grasp that God has a better handle than we do on the situation we're always going to be in opposition to what God wants to do in our lives. We're always going to be standing in the way, knowingly or, even, or unknowingly limiting what God can do in our lives. And before anybody says, we can't, you can't limit what God does, the scripture supports it. Jesus went to his hometown, and what did it say? He could not do any miracles there because of their unbelief their unbelief their doubt actually limited what god could do in their midst and really if you boil it down to it when we tell god how we can work and how we can't it's just a lack of faith and trusting in what he wants for our lives instead of instead trusting in what we want for our lives amen Amen. so let me give you some examples of how god's ways are different than our ways these are some of my favorite stories in the bible 2 Kings 5, 1 through 3 is about Naaman. You guys know know who Naaman is? It says, Naaman, commander of the army, the king of Syria, was a great man with his master in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of the raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my lord... (laughs) Were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So if you guys don't know, Naaman was uh, number two in command under Ben-Hadad II, the king of Aram-Damascus. He was an extremely successful general. He had many, many victories. And there's a difference in the way that they handled lepers in other countries versus Israel. In Israel, if you were a leper, you were considered unclean. You had to walk around with a bell, letting everybody know you were unclean so they didn't accidentally touch you and get unclean themselves. You had to live outside the camp unless you were healed and, and went through the, 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 the purification process to come back into the camp. But in uh, these other countries around them, it wasn't the same way. They didn't, as, as long as he could still do his job, it wasn't an issue that he was a leper, at least not to the same extent as in Israel, if he could do his job, he could, he could continue to do so. The problem is, though, is that, that leprosy was a, a terminal disease. And if you know this backstory of Naaman, this little girl that he's talking to, this, uh, this little girl here was, was actually captured in a raid. She was a little Hebrew girl that was captured in a raid. And I've always thought it strange <laughs> that this little girl wanted to help Naaman. If I were ever kidnapped, I don't think I would be all about helping my captor. But this little girl does. She says, listen, if, my, if you were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he could cure him of his leprosy. And it brings to thing, a co- a mind a couple of things. One, all I see when I look at this is this girl that's a slave. And I keep saying little girl. I'm not sure how old she is. That's the problem with the Bible. When they say someone's a girl or a boy, that's like somewhere between young, young 20s and below. She's somewhere around there. I don't know how old she actually is. But uh, she's a slave. And you're like, man, it's got to be rough for this girl. But that's when you understand that if you trust God, it doesn't matter where you're at, you're still free. She was still free. She still trusted God. Her circumstances may not have been the best, but she still trusted God. And because of that, she still had freedom in her life. So it's not so strange because, did you know, the Bible actually tells us to pray for our enemies. But most of us aren't willing to do that. Matthew 5, says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, that's what a people who are free look like. So this young girl, she, she, she says, listen, he should go see Elisha. So after hearing this, Naaman hears about this and, and that's the end of what he does. He ends up heading down to see Elisha. So in 2 Kings 5, 9 through 11, it says, so Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. So we're already seeing all these things that probably wouldn't happen if we were the ones in charge. If I was in charge, there wouldn't be any praying and helping my captors. And then now we, we have, we have uh, Naaman show up, and, and he's got an expectation that isn't fulfilled the way he expected it. So Naaman is a high ranking official, and he expected to be received like a high ranking official or a prince. Because that's how kings did things. If he would have went to see another king, they would have received him, had gifts for him. It would have been, been a big ado. But Elisha didn't even come out to greet him. A messenger just comes out and says, hey, go wash in the Jordan. And we see Naaman just, he gets upset. He had an expectation of what would happen. He had traveled all the way from Damascus to Samaria, And it's funny because now he's upset over traveling a couple more miles. He just had a little bit further to go and he would have been taken care of. But you want to know what his problem was? And I bet you, if you look at your life, you've had this same problem. He said, I thought. (laughs) He had an idea of how it should go. I thought it was supposed to go like this. I thought that they would have done this. He had an idea of how God was supposed to work. I thought God would send his prophet out and it would be this big majestic ceremony. He would wave his hands over me, he would do all these things, and and then I would be. He had an idea of how God should work. And God doesn't work the way that he wants him to work. Matter of fact, if we're really thinking about this, I'm not sure, from one perspective, why would God even work at all in this man's life? You see, someone that was, was, was raiding Hebrew camps. I mean, this is it. like, why would God even be wanting to help this guy at all? And obviously, there's some lessons that we can learn throughout it. You can see why God ultimately do, does this. And, and truthfully, and once this is all through, God actually saves this man. But his problem is, is, is I thought, have you ever been angered or challenged? that God didn't do a thing in the way that you expected it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you said, I thought. Even today, many people want to choose what they'll do to be saved. They'll, they'll, they have the things that they're willing to do. I'm willing to go to church. Maybe I'm willing to read my Bible, give money, or do acts of kindness, but uh, I'm not giving up this relationship that I have. I'm not giving up this part of my life. We, they have this idea of how they want God to work in their lives. They want the good parts and they don't want to deal with it. You know, they want to be saved but they don't want to deal with the obedience. They want to be saved but they don't want to call him Lord. They want to be saved but still call themselves Lord. Even yesterday during our men's meeting we were talking about the difference between a volunteer and a servant. And the the the, the way I was describing it and thinking about it was that a volunteer is still in control of their service. But they say, I'll do this for you. But there's, they're in control of their service. They can always take it back, or they can pick and choose. You know, in the church, not here in other churches, there's people that uh, you know, they say, I'll, I'll volunteer, but I only want to do this. But to be a servant means that you give your entire service for somebody else to control. If you're a volunteer, you say, I'll do this and I'll do this, but I won't do these things. But if you're a servant, you say, I'll do whatever you need me to do. There's a difference. But so many go, but I thought that if I was going to serve God, I could do whatever I wanted. I could, I could pick and choose how I was going to do it. So Benaman, he gets upset. He says, I thought this is how God was going to do it. So as we continue on in this story, verses 12 through 14, it says, Are not Avana and Parper, the rivers of Damascus better than the water of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father is a is a great word the prophet, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Naaman was so angry at how God wanted to do this. It wasn't like he wanted it. He was ready to just turn around and walk away. I wonder how many people have walked away from their miracle because they, they didn't think it was the way that they would have done it. They thought God should have used a different plan, a different method. Pride and offense will get you in all kinds of trouble. So Naaman ultimately has to be humbled by one of his servants. Thank God he had somebody around him that had a little bit of wisdom and was willing to go and talk to him. Often people do the very same thing. Even in salvation, they can't understand why God would give this free gift of grace to they must have to do something, right? Like there's no way that God could just give it away for free. There are many people that reject the gospel just because it seems like it's too good to be true. Even Christians get roped into this way of thinking. Even those of us who have accepted the Lord as our Savior, we, we end up trying to earn or compete for our salvation. But then it becomes something that we accomplish and not what God has accomplished. You know, so he's upset and the, the servants come to him and say, listen what if he had told you to do something amazing what if he said you have to go kill 200 enemies or you have to climb this mountain then would you do it and he would probably because he would think that there was something on my end if, if i did that then i earned what god was going to give to me he says listen has he just said to go wash and be clean quit being an idiot and go wash and be clean he probably didn't say that it would probably get him killed to say that but that's what he was thinking He's like, what are you doing? Why are you so upset? He didn't ask you to do a hard thing. He asked you to do so, something so simple. Just go and wash and be cleaned. Now, you know the rest of the story. If you know the rest of the story, he, he ends up going down to the river and he washes and he's, he's cleaned. Matter of fact, God does such a thorough job that not only is he cured of his leprosy, but his skin becomes like that of a baby. And, and what it means by that is that it's, it's perfect. It's flawless. There is no damage. There's no, it's just like as if his skin were freshly born. God heals him to that extent. That's one of those things that, that I think we forget too is that when we begin telling God how he can do things, is we forget what he can actually do. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly and all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us that's according to his power at work within us you see when we think about how we would do things we don't even realize it. we're putting these artificial limitations Naaman probably just wanted to be 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 clean but God's like you know what I'm going to make you even better if it had been up to Naaman he would have limited what God... could. matter of fact, Naaman almost did limit God completely by just walking off and not even going through with what God asked him to do. And what's interesting in this whole thing is you find in the New Testament when you're reading about this that in this time period, the only person to get cured of leprosy was a heathen. It was Naaman. Not one Israelite got cured of leprosy in this time period. I wonder if they had their own ideas of how God should be moving too. So we continue on in this story a little bit further down the line. This is where he went and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of man of God. His flesh was restored like the clean flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And then after that, it says, Then he returned to the man of God, and he tells, he and all his company, this is 2 Kings 5, 15 through 19, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And the Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not, be, will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any god but the Lord. And in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this manner. And he said to him, go in peace. Because he finally submitted himself to God, he finally stopped saying, you know what, it's only going to work the way that I want it to work. He humbled himself and did it God's way. Even though it was unconventional, he finally gets clean. And now he says, you know what? Now I recognize that God was in this. I recognize that, 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 that this God is bigger than I expected. And I had tried to limit who he could do. But instead, I trusted. I did what he said. And I'm completely healed. And he began to learn also, as, as we go through this story, that God doesn't do stuff because he expects something in return. God does it because he loves us. And that's what happens. He goes and he says, listen, thank you for, for what happened. Let me, let me give you a gift. And Elisha says, you know what? I'm not going to accept any gift. Because Elisha doesn't want to take credit for what God has done either. This wasn't something for, for Elisha to get a payday. This wasn't for, for to show how good Elisha was. This was a free gift of the Lord. He went ahead and cleansed Naaman. It also cements in Naaman's mind. Remember, I said, like, why is God doing all this stuff? And we're seeing that God is actually teaching and, and, and saving this man. God is moving in this man's life. And, and we see that this idea that, that Elisha won't accept this gift. It's, it's gift. It's cementing in Naaman's mind that God isn't going to, isn't someone who could be bought. The gifts of God are never bought. That's why they're called gifts. And then, but once again, Naaman has this false idea of God. But he's growing, right? First, he's like, how can God work this way? But then he trusts and it's happening. But he's still got this weird idea of God. He's, he's still learning. He's still growing. Like all of us, we've had these weird ideas of God. But he says, you know what? Then fine. I can't give you a gift, but let me take some dirt with me. So that way I can offer sacrifices to the Lord, that I can worship God there. He had this idea in his head that the only way to worship the God of Israel is if you had a little piece of Israel with you. Because in those days, gods were tied to the land. You worshiped the God of where you lived. He didn't understand that, that the God of Israel wasn't just the God of, of Israel, but he was the God of everything. So he thought if he left the land, he left the God. i got to take some of this land with me. But he didn't understand that God was still there. And you know what's interesting here is, is uh Elisha doesn't even correct him in this one. He's like, fine, just go. Because the reality is, is that even though it's a little bit skewed, Naaman's still doing it in faith. He wants to honor God. The taking that little bit of dirt was an act of faith on him. And if you think about it, maybe Elisha and God let him take it because if he shows back up, into his land with his gods with a couple loads of dirt, he's going to have to answer to that. He's, a, he's essentially going to have to evangelize his own country. You see that, that, that we're like, why would God do something like this? But now God's going to begin to infiltrate a country and make a difference there because of what this man does. And then he also asks for grace. He says, listen, I'm going to go back and I'm only going to sacrifice to the Lord my God but I still work for the king. And when my master goes into sacrifice, I'm going to have to go with him. So I hope that the Lord can forgive me for this. Because really, he was going to have to go through the rituals, but his heart wasn't in it. And then Elisha says, go in peace. What a, what a, I I look at some of the things that God does, and I'm like, "I, I would have never done it this way. Like, this just seems bizarre to me. Like, why wouldn't he go all the way? Why wouldn't you tell him, no, you can't take the dirt, that's stupid. And no, you can't sacrifice anymore. more. But he, he, he just lets, one, he's letting Naaman grow through it. And two, he's going to use Naaman to impact an entire nation. And I don't know how it all plays out in the end. We don't have that documented. But at a minimum, the king is going to hear about the God of Israel. Amen? Because he's got to explain this dirt. But it's, it's just this, this weird way. Like I could think of so many other ways that God could have impacted a nation or done something different. But now we've got, we, we've got uh, a little girl that's praying for her captors, which isn't how I would have done it. Now we have... Um, uh, God having Naaman comes in and he's like, this is this is not how I would have done it, but he gets healed, and then he goes back and once again, uh, Elisha gives him instructions, which probably isn't how I would have done it. But the reality is, is that 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 God is so far above how we think or do things, and if we'll just let Him move the way He wants to, and telling Him how we can or cannot move, we'll see miracles happen. And. It's not the only place there's stories all throughout the Bible. The st- Gideon's one of my favorite stories as well. Judges seven, nineteen through twenty-one, it says so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirt of camp at the beginning of the middle watch, and when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the jars, and they held in their left hand torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp. All the army ran, and they cried out and fled. If you had to go to war, how would you do it? In my mind, in war, More soldiers is better. Right? You want to have the superior force. And one of the ways to have the superior force is just to have more of the force. So Gideon is getting ready to fight Midian. Right? And and he starts off with 32,000 soldiers. That's pretty good. I mean, I think that's, I don't know how many are going to be on the other side, but 32,000 is pretty good. Pretty good group of men. So God says, you know what? Send home whoever's fearful and trembling. Gideon's like, okay, God, I think we had a good start here. This is not how I would have done it, but fine. He goes and talks to the men and says, listen, if you're afraid, go home. That leaves him with 10,000, 22,000 men left. I say, all right, 10,000, that's still a lot of men. I mean, it's not 32,000, but that's still a lot of dudes. I think we can do something here. All right, God, let's do it. And then God says, you know what? I got something else we need to do. Go take them to get water. And watch how they drink. And the ones that uh, go down on all fours to drink, you send them home and the ones that stay up when they drink. And there's been all kinds of commentary about why this is, right? If you're, if you're a man who goes down on all fours and puts your mouth on the water, then you're not paying attention. You're completely vulnerable. So maybe that's why he didn't want the guys that were, weren't paying attention to send them home. Because the other option is you go down on one knee and you bring the water up to your mouth, right? You're still attentive. You're still looking around. Maybe that's why. I don't know. Don't ask me these questions. It doesn't say exactly. But that's what people speculate. But when it's all said and done, He sends home 9,700 more men. He's left with 300. Can you imagine like, Gideon, I need you to send 22,000 men home. Are you serious? Do you see how many the enemy has gone? You know what, you're God. I'm going to trust you. And then after he gets said and done, he's only got 10,000 men left, God goes, Gideon, come here. I need to talk to you again. Can you imagine? I need you to send almost all of them home, you're just gonna keep Are you serious, God? But don't worry, Gideon. I'm not letting them go in empty-handed. Have them leave their swords and their weapons at home, send them in with trumpets and pots. Can you imagine that? Like, that's requiring a lot of trust. And you realize that this is a this is a, for Gideon to trust this. This is a lot of growth in that man. Because remember, the first time God shows up and he's like, "God, if it's really you, I'm going to put a fleece out. And in the morning, the fleece will be wet, the ground will be dry. I know it's you." Okay. Next morning, that's what happened. Fleece is wet, ground's dry. All right, God. I know I said I would trust you if you did this, but let's do one more test. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to put the fleece out, but I want the ground wet and the fleece dry. And that happens the next morning, right? God humors him God is patient with him I'm so glad God is patient with us because you're like I would never do something so st- oh you've done that plenty of times in your life yeah. you've had your tests you've had your, your things you put in front of God but now, now God showed his power in that moment and, and a couple other things that happened with the, the, the other gods of his village the totems right and, and, uh, but now we get here and God's like now nah, I'm going to see if you really trust me That's not how I would do things. I don't think that if I was going to war, I'd be like, you know what, I think the best thing that we can do is go in with as few people as we can with no weapons. Matter of fact, we're just gonna bring trumpets and pots and we're not even gonna hit them with these things. We're just gonna make noise. That's that's how we're gonna win this war. Could you imagine that was the battle plan that you received? I'm proud that Gideon went ahead and went through it because if I'm being honest, I don't know if I would have, I'd be like, you know what, God? I think you're asking a little too much of me. I don't see how this is physically possible. There is absolutely no way that we could go in there, this entire, face this entire army with 300 men and not even have any weapons. I mean, you're not even going to give us weapons? This is crazy, God. Because Gideon probably had an idea of how he would do it in his own mind. I know that I have ideas of how things should work. What about this story? John 2, 3 through 10. It's when Jesus turned the water into wine. So when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Even the mom of Jesus doesn't put up with his nonsense. She says, woman, what's this got to do with me? She just ignores him. Just do whatever he says. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And said to him, everyone who serves the good wine first, when people have drunk freely, then then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. There are so many examples in the Bible that from a human's perspective, how God moves is kind of questionable. This is Jesus' first miracle. One that he didn't even really want to do, but mom said he had to. So he listens to mom. But the the pots that he uses, these used for purification. These are the pots where they 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 when the, the Jewish men came in, they cleaned their feet with. It was part of the purification ritual. They were getting them clean to come in, right? This isn't pristine drinking water. You know, this this wasn't uh, something that they were expected to drink. This was used for purification, and God says, you know what? Use that water. And. They begin to pour it, and it, obviously it turns into wine. And then they go, and, and you got to imagine, these guys here says that the, the, feast, the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and he didn't know where it came from, but the servant who drew the water knew. Can you imagine what's going through that guy's head? Like, I can't believe I'm serving. He's going to kill me. And like when we say that now, like, no, no, they could literally kill servants back then. Like, this was a real possibility. Like, if this doesn't work out, what an odd miracle. Why would God do it this way? I mean, really, God could have just filled up the empty wine barrels with no wine. Why did he use this in such an odd way? But I, I don't know. The, the more I see God work, I think God just does stuff so that nobody can be confused on who did it. When you go into war with 300 dudes, some pots and pans, and a trumpet. Nobody's confused on who won that war because it sure as heck wasn't 300 guys with pots and pans and trumpets. It was God. Right? When the purification water gets turned up, that has to be God. I mean, this is a bona fide miracle. This was, this was not drinking water, now turned to wine, and not just wine, but the best wine. God exceeds their expectations. What about Joshua 6, 2 through 5? And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, Then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, every one straight before him. This story here brings new meaning to someone saying, man, that guy's got a powerful voice. If you were going to go in and siege a city, how many of you said, you know what? Let's just walk around it for a while and then we'll yell real loud. That should probably do it. That is such an odd way to do a war. Like, I mean, they're they're sieging this city. And and in our heads, this is what we see, right? Man, this is a big city. And we're like, what would a wall look like? Well, I got a wall in my backyard. So it's probably just a cinder block wall surrounding this city. They yell. It gets pushed over flat. Like, not a big deal. But if you know about this city, Jericho, this wall was massive. Matter of fact, the wall was so wide that you could run two chariots side by side on it. When it says the wall fell flat, if it just fell over, it would still be a wall because it's so thick. This wall just went flat. It's like it deflated. It sank into the earth. I don't know exactly what happened. I wasn't there. But we know that this wall was massive, and then it fell, and everyone could go straight before him into the city. So one, that's just an interesting way for the wall to go flat. Like, I, I would have ne- never thought to do it that way. I mean, I'm like, God, can you just open the door? Let us in? Like, it seems like that would be easier. And then on top of that, I'm thinking, well, maybe God can give us better weapons, make them more powerful. You can make us, let us fly, make us stronger. Like all these other things, like even if we're going to go supernatural, I can think of all these kinds of better ways to infiltrate a city. But God's like, no, I just want you to march around it, not making a sound. But on the seventh day, blow the trumpets and yell, and the wall goes flat. Do you see that? The way God thinks about doing things is always different than how we would do things. You would think that as we read this and also we experience this, we would get over that hump and say, you know what, God? Just do it your way. And before you guys think I'm just preaching at you, remember that any time a pastor preaches, 90% of the time he's preaching to himself. Because I would think I would learn this by now as well, but it seems like every time God wants to do something, I have to get over that hurdle once more again. But the reality is is God does stuff in ways that we would never imagine, and it's always perfect. It always works just like he expected it to, as long as we'll just get out of the way. You want to know what would have happened if this group of Israelites said, you know what, God, that just doesn't make any sense. We're not going to do it. You want to know what would have happened? Nothing. If they would have said, you know what, we're not going to do it. It's just like when they went into the promised land, and God says, you need to go in there and take the land. And, and, and instead of taking the land, they got scared and said, no, but we're like, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And, and God's like, you know what, I was with you. If you would have done what I told you, you would have had victory. And then afterwards, a group of them got together. They're like, you know what, he's right. We're just going to go ahead and do it. But they went on their own and they got defeated. They did the same thing, but they did it outside of what God wanted and they were defeated. Same thing here. Uh, if if they would have not did what God said, you know what, this doesn't make sense, I think we're going to do it our own way. We're going to break siege towers, we're going to put ladders up, we're going to break down the doors. They could have done that all day long and they wouldn't have been successful. But if they would just do it how God asked them to do it, and we know that they did, they were victorious, Amen? amen? One of the craziest stories in the Bible, I think is not how I would have done it, it's the birth of Jesus. Joseph, uh, Luke 2, 4 through 7, Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him at the inn. This is the story of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. This is the, the man who came to save the entire world. And he came in the most vulnerable way that it's possible to come. I don't know what the, mort- the infant mortality rate was back in those days, but it was a lot higher than it is now. So already the odds seem stacked against him. And then he's a baby. Babies are just fragile for me like i i remember when i first had my son like i always felt like i was gonna break him he was so little and fragile this is how god sent the savior of the world if it was me i would have done things a little first off he would have come full grown (laughs) as a warrior with some armor and an army of angels nothing was happening to the savior that i'm sending that's how I know. That. That's one of the, the greatest evidences to me that the, that the Bible is true and what's written is from God. It's because nothing in it is how I've done it. If you look at every other religion, you see how men do it. You have to do this and this and this. You have to earn it. You have to do it this way. You have to be strong enough. You have to be powerful enough. You have to do the right things. This is the only one where God says, you guys can't do that. I'm going to take care of it myself. And then when he does it, he does it like we would never do it. In my mind, from a human perspective, this is such a silly way to send a Savior. It doesn't make any sense. It just seems doomed to failure. It really does. But we know the rest of the story. Not only was it not a failure, it worked out just how God wanted And even when they thought that they had won, they thought that they had killed him. That was actually the catalyst that saved every single one of us. And Jesus fulfilled what he was supposed to fulfill. problem is, is we all have this idea of how God should move. Romans 9, 10 through 16 says, "'Not only so, but also when Rebekah "'had conceived children by one man, "'our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born "'and had done nothing, either good or bad, "'in order that God's purpose of election might continue, "'not because of works, but because of him who calls. "'And she was told, "'The older I will serve, the younger. "'And as, I, as it is written, "'Jacob I love but Esau I hated. "'What shall we say then? "'Is there injustice on God's part? "'By no means.'" For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, when Paul's dealing with here is Paul didn't, or the Jews did not expect God to go to the Gentiles. They had a real problem with that. They were the people of God. Why was God reaching out to the Gentiles? It wasn't according to their plan. It wasn't according to how they would do it. And Paul's trying to demonstrate, listen, this is not your choice to make. It's God's. Quit telling God what he can or cannot do. Now, many people will use this passage to argue that that, uh, Christianity is only available for a subset of people but they forget the whole point of what Paul's arguing here. Paul is not arguing for exclusivity. He's arguing for inclusivity. Paul is arguing that, listen, God can do whatever he wants. Let me show you some scripture where God can do what he wants. And if he wants to include the Gentiles, who are you to say otherwise? The thing is, is that we always have ideas of how God should work, how he should move, what he should do. In this case, the Jews thought that, that he was just for them. God had other plans. And Paul argues, quit making your own plans. Instead, understand that God is the one that has the authority and power to make plans. Amen. And then we'll end here. No, we won't end here. I was just kidding. Job 38, 1 through 7, another perfect example. (laughs) When the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone when the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? I can't imagine being on the receiving end of this rebuke But if you know the story of Job You know that a bunch of stuff happens to Job And he starts getting upset at God He's like, God, why don't you come down here So I can make my case Because you're wrong in this It's the new Wayne uh, abbreviated version But uh, uh, he's basically arguing with God Saying, God, like, well, come down here so I can argue my case You don't have a right So God comes down here And I can't imagine God showing up and saying this to me the Lord answered to Job out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me? And then he begins to ask, Were you there when I did this? Were you there when I did that? And he begins to point out to Job, that, and this applies to all of us, we have no right to tell God how he can and can't do anything. We have no right to tell God how things should be or how things should not be. The truth is that if God says it, it is right, it is just, and it'll be done. One of the things that Francis Chan once said that I've always found interesting is he said, listen, God is God and he can do what he wants. And if you guys don't know who Francis Chan is, he's a a Chinese man. And he said, if the Bible said that all Chinese men must, must always stand and walk on their hands, then I would do it. Because I don't have to agree with it. God is God. If that's what he says is right, then that's what's right. And that's the thing. Who are we to tell God what is right and what's wrong? Instead, we just need to start letting God dictate what is, what is in our lives. Amen? And now we'll actually finish. Isaiah 40:13 through 14 Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The point here is that it wasn't us. We can look all through scripture and there were so many odds or so many examples that seem to be at odds with what... uh, how we would do things or what things seem to be possible. The tree in the garden. Seems to me if the tree wasn't there, things would have been a lot easier. But God did it his way. Removing Adam and Eve from the garden after the fall. Seems pretty harsh. It's not how I would do things. The good news is, as many of these things are explained to us, we can have that aha moment. The flood in the ark. People being raised from the dead. Oil that never runs out when it's being poured, fish and bread that multiplies and feeds thousands, even salvation by faith alone and not by works. All these things are stuff that God did that either seem impossible to us, so we would have said that that's not possible and tried to limit what God could do, or it's just so out of the norm of how we would decide to do things. And it just demonstrates over and over that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And we need to understand that it's not us who directs God, but it should be God who directs us. Because every time we try to direct Him, we limit His ability to work in our lives. His ways are superior to our ways. Amen? So let's just start trying to learn to trust Him. Quit trying to define Him his abilities or to even define him and his motives by our own experience and expectation and limited understanding. Amen.